I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Three guests this week, three excellent guests. First up, ESPN reporter and Utah jazz analyst Holly Rowe. Um, she, uh, she has some remarkably high-profile jobs, as you know, in college football and just recently became an analyst on the Utah jazz broadcast. And, uh, and she discusses uh, that role and how she got it. Pretty interesting story. And, uh, and we get into a lot of stuff about college football as well as uh, doing the WNBA this year. So Holly Rowe, one of the most uh, beloved people in the business, liked by everybody, so always great when she comes on. She's followed by Jimmy Traina, of course, a writer-producer for Sports Illustrated, the host of the SI Media Podcast. And Jimmy's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times. Of course, Jimmy now hosts the uh, Sports Illustrated Media Podcast, which I used to host. And uh, we get into a lot of stuff from Amazon to uh, the Manning, Megacast, uh, what we expect from World Series interests, uh, should we care at all about Sunday Night Baseball, and then Jimmy goes into a discussion on why he is not a big fan of the red zone, which is uh, interesting. We also get into a little, uh, as we always do, a little wrestling talk at the end, WWE, AEW. Jimmy's followed by Ivan Maisel, um, the well-known college football writer. He's now vice president of editorial and a senior writer for On3. Uh, his newest book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of lost grief and love is about his late son, Max. And um, I really appreciate Ivan coming on. Um, the book is a really a lovely tribute to his son, but it's really a lot about sort of processing grief and, and how to deal with grief and um, what Max's life was like and, and what Ivan and, and his wife and daughter's life were like after Max passed. And, um, and I think you'll appreciate that interview. There's no roadmap for grief. And, um, and Ivan Mazel, I think, knows that probably now better than uh, than most of us. So I appreciated his insight and his time. So Holly wrote a start. Jimmy Train a second, followed by Ivan Mazel on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, um, I can't say enough good things about Holly Rowe. Although Lord knows I have in print, Holly. Um <laughs> She is, of course, uh, an ESPN college football, college basketball, WNBA reporter and analyst, and now an analyst for the Utah Jazz, which is the reason I wanted to have her on this podcast, because it's a really interesting, um, it's just a, it's a really interesting job she has in addition to what is obviously a very high profile job at ESPN. And Holly Rowe joins me on the sports media podcast. Holly, how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm excited to talk to you. I, I follow your tweets. I'm much more in tune with Canadian sports now because of your Twitter. So thank you for that. Don't acknowledge you follow me on Twitter. I don't want to see any, you, you get any reduced of salary or, or get in trouble at ESPN. Um, all right. So let, let's start with, I want to talk about the, um, the jazz job because it's really interesting. I mean, again, you, you've had you know, you've had a phenomenal career at ESPN. You have very high profile, uh, you know, almost any of your high profile jobs are sort of a destination job in itself. And you have multiple jobs, 
But then this Utah Jazz um, job comes up, and so that's where I want to start. Um, how did you end up landing uh, an on-air analyst position calling Jazz games? So the craziest part of this story is it all began at a play in New York City called A Time to Kill, written by Aaron Sorkin, performed by Jeff Daniels. That's the story. Um, it's the weirdest story, Richard, because I was at a play with my son before uh, you know COVID hit, and these two men walked up to me and said, are you Holly Rowe? And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. You don't often get recognized in New York City. And it turned out to be um, part of the ownership group for the Utah Jazz now. But at that time, they were just executives at Qualtrics, uh, Mike Mon and Ryan Smith. And they wanted me to come out and do an interview with Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, at their big convention. It's like 10,000 people in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I did that. I think it was three years ago. And I got to meet Oprah and I was so excited. That was kind of the, the, the carrot they dangled. Like, if you come do this for us, um, you can meet Oprah too. And I'm like, I'm there. I totally do it. So, you know, we kind of started a relationship and I knew them then. And then they turned out to end up buying the jazz with an investment group a little bit later. So this summer, somebody from the jazz emailed me and said, hey, we'd love to talk to you about becoming a part of our organization. But it was a man named Bart Sharp, who's their executive um, chief officer of marketing. And so I kind of thought it was a marketing role. Like I live in Utah. I'm frequently tweeting about the jazz. Like I'm just a fan. And so I thought it was more along those lines. And when I went in to meet with him, he said, would love to bring you on as an analyst. And I was kind of shocked because, you know, it's not something I've sought out. It wasn't something I had on my radar. And I just, um, I, you know, every time I see Ryan Smith, we just chuckle about he's their new owner. And I'm like, wow, this all started at the Aaron Sorkin play, A Time to Kill in New York City. How crazy is that? That is pretty amazing. All right. So you, when they presented this to you, they, they, they presented to you as we want you to be, um, you know, we want you to be like our, like, you know, what Jeff Van Gundy does nationally or what Doris Burke does nationally. We want you to be like a traditional analyst on games. Is it a hybrid role where you're an analyst slash uh, maybe you're doing the analyst from the sidelines the way... A lot of the uh, in the glass people do hockey for um, the Canadian broadcasts or ESPN. How do they present it? Like the like the literal function of the job. Yeah, so they presented it as analyst. As um, they they had an analyst who was moving on, Matt Harpring, and so they presented it to me as the analyst. And the first person I called, obviously, was Doris Burke, who was a dear friend of mine and who I think is the best analyst out there talking about basketball. And I told her what the opportunity was. And the first thing she said was, you can do it. And um, that's all I needed to hear. Because if Doris Burke would have been like, what the heck, you can't do this or what? Or if she would have had any pause at all, I would not have done it. That's the honest to God truth. Because Doris, um, her opinion means everything to me. And she knows basketball. And she and I have worked together. So she knows my level of knowledge about basketball. And she said, you can do it. You know basketball. So um, that that's all it took for me was I wanted to be here and home. And, you know, it's really cool to be able to work, leave, leave your house, drive down to work, come back to your house and be able to work without getting on a plane. That was a huge piece of the attraction to me. The other piece was this is a really fun, awesome, good team with a, a dynamic superstar in Donovan Mitchell. So I think the team is also a huge attraction that I would get to cover those games and those players. And then the other thing they said to me, which I took to heart, is that they were looking for more storytelling and entertainment 
in their broadcast. So that I think that's what I can bring the most. And I do think I can analyze basketball. I've been doing it for 25 years. Do I have to learn a ton about the NBA and personnel and rules? That yes. You know, I have my work cut out for me to be really good at this. Um, I did a game Friday and I, I thought I did okay, but I was mad at myself for uh, missing a small lineup change that the Kings did. And that's a big storyline this year of teams trying to go small and play Rudy Gobert off the floor and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's some things that I've got to get able to recognize more quickly in the moment and I'll get better at that. But, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a really different new role for me, but I also think, you know, one thing I said to them is I'd love this to be positionless announcing. Like we get so caught up in who's doing the play-by-play, who's the sideline reporter, who's the sideline, you know, like we get caught up in these titles. And I said, like, I'd love it to be positionless broadcasting. Is that something you guys would consider? So I kind of think that's what we're in because Craig Bowlerjack is our traditional play-by-play. Thurl Bailey would be considered a traditional analyst. I'm probably a non-traditional analyst. Um, but I think that we're all working together and I think it's been really smooth for our first couple of games. We're just talking basketball. And I think that's kind of cool. Positionless basketball is a huge deal right now. And so we're kind of on that trend. I like that. I I would think, I mean, in many ways, the Manning megacast is a positionalist broadcast with Peyton and Eli just talking with each other. Maybe Peyton brings you is more of a traditional person who might bring more uh, of the show to break, but it's very, very similar. Um, one of the um, one of the things when I knew I was going to talk to you uh, that I wanted to ask you about was it's not really a question I think for you of 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 performing on air when you are doing your assignment, but it really is Holly just a lot of uh, a lot of research and a lot of things now that you have to almost compartmentalize in your brain, right? Because you're doing college football on a weekly basis, and the NBA is a day to day job, so. I think my listeners just would be interested in like how what's the what's the process for you like do you take a certain amount of time each day to just focus on the jazz and then on certain days especially as it gets closer to the weekend you focus on college football how does how does it work in terms of just preparing for both of these assignments yeah I'm blocking out certain days for certain things so for example um, today is Monday and I am getting my Ohio State Penn State game boards done I'm watching both teams last game although that might take me into Tuesday because Penn State's was a nine overtime game. Um, so I'm boxing out my my time for my college football stuff to get my work done early in the week. So then when we start having coaches calls, like let's say on Wednesdays and Thursdays, I'm already prepped for that game. So I know what questions and I know what, what to be researching and organizing. Um, and then for example, tomorrow uh, the jazz have practice at 11 AM. I will be there. I will go to the practice. I will make sure I ask questions I won't have a jazz game until Sunday. So it'll be Utah jazz at the Milwaukee bucks. So that'll be, that's going to be a busy weekend for me. I'll go from um, Ohio state on Saturday night, fly early the next morning to Milwaukee to do jazz at Milwaukee. And then I'll fly home on the team plane with Utah jazz on Sunday night. So it's, it's going to be intriguing and hectic for me, but I, you know, I told the jazz folks, I'm like, I still want to work for ESPN. I don't want to give this job up. It's my dream job. And they said, we'll be patient with you. We think it's a big deal for you to be on ESPN and still also be on our our broadcast. So we'll be patient with your schedule. And that was all I needed to hear. And they have been. I had a, I don't know how much you know about what happened this weekend, but I had a really crazy situation this weekend where Thurl Bailey, uh, the other analyst, could not be at the game on Friday because his son was getting married. 
And so I went to UCLA practice, football practice meetings, met with Chip Kelly, um, rushed to the airport to fly up from LA to Sacramento to do the jazz game Friday night. And my flight was delayed four hours. Sky West and Delta had a huge issue with um, a technical issue. So I got there late. I got to the game late and it was like the most chaotic panicked feeling I've ever had. So I did the jazz game um, in Sacramento. It was a close game went right down to the wire. The jazz hold on to win. And then because of those flight delays, I got in a car and drove from Sacramento back to Los Angeles because I just couldn't get delayed the next morning for a 1230 uh, game. So I drove six hours back and slept for five hours and then worked the game Saturday. So it's been a chaotic weekend, but hopefully the flight plans don't get messed up in the future. How, on the reverse side, how has ESPN been with, um, with your jazz work and knowing that... Um, you know, I mean, the NBA schedule is such Holly where, you know, a lot of midweek games. I imagine if it's a Saturday, obviously you'll be doing um, college football as opposed to the jazz. But um, but, you know, they have to be they have to sign off on this as well. Or it really can't work logistically. Right. Yeah, they were awesome about it. So I called Norby Williamson and he was really, really cool about it. And he's like, I don't see any issues. Like, you know, as long as it doesn't interfere with what we're asking you to do, I don't see any issues. And you know, this Friday was a, an extreme example. I was just trying to f- help them fill in with Thurl having that wedding. And I called my college football boss, Steve Ackles, and he's like, hey, if your college football work is done and you feel like you have the stamina to do it, go for it. So they've been really awesome and supportive about it. Um, but I, I don't think I'll do that kind of double dip again. I, I just have to really focus on football through December you know, I'll do the jazz midweek games, but I'll really focus on football through December and then uh, dig in a little bit more with the jazz coming after that. I want to ask you a question about college football um, and access this year. Now, you know, obviously, the you know, if I was talking to um, one of my colleagues at The Athletic or if I was talking to a newspaper college football writer, the access that they have would be different than um, a person such as yourself who is on the, you know, who's on the main um, broadcast of a college football game. ESPN is a massive multi-billion dollar partner with the NCAA. So I, we make the presumption that access is going to be different. That said, um, you know, there are, you are sort of sort of navigating the, the world of COVID and the access even for, I would imagine for you and the Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreit's types is nothing like it might've been in 2018 or 2017. So could you give us just a sense of like, you know, how many, like, what's the access with coaches and players? Is it only Zoom? Are you able to go to practice? Are you able to talk to people in person? What's it been like? It's been a hybrid. It's been a real mix. And, you know, it's interesting because I do think there are some schools who don't want to really give access. And so they're going to continue to use COVID as a way to box people out and not give access which I understand, except for, I think now that most of us are vaccinated and we're still wearing masks and still using a lot of safety precautions, uh, there's other schools that are just like rolling out the red carpet and giving us a ton of access. So two that I would really applaud for how much access they give us, you know, Clemson and Georgia, um, you know, two of the top programs in the country anything we need, everything we need. Um, the best sports information director in America is Claude Felton at Georgia, who is absolutely anything we need, we get. Um, we were at UCLA this weekend and they could not have been more accommodating and speak to players in person, speak to speak to the star players, come to practice. Um, 
come use our facilities. They let me use one of the coaches offices to do my WMBA central show for Sirius XM that morning. You know, so it's, it's interesting. It, I think schools that understand we can be one of the most powerful recruiting tools you have because we're going to talk about your team for five hours or four hours on Saturday and lots of social media and lots of stuff around. Um, use us, make it, make it beneficial to you, right? I think it's a great partnership. So I don't understand the schools who are tight and don't want to give access. And I, I hope they can see that it's in their best interest to adapt. The, well said. The um, the post game scene in college football is always chaotic. No, no matter you know that that would have been the case in 1985, as in the cases in 2021. Um, I wonder uh, for you this this year in particular, um, are there is it more of a challenge to grab a player and a coach? Because I would imagine that, and again, this is just me guessing. I could be wrong that the security apparatus exists that they want to sort of protect as best they can coaches and players from like on Russian crowds. I'm sure some of that is COVID. Obviously a lot of that is security, but has it been the same for you or it, is it, I don't know. It just based on my eye test, Holly, it feels like it's even like more crazy and chaotic for the, the, the sideline reporter on the field this year than in years past. But that might be me just thinking that's the case. You're there. No, I haven't. I have. There is no limitations. Like people rush the field. It, the field is exactly the same to me. Like there's nobody in my mind in those moments thinking about COVID. Really, I, I just see everybody go across. Players are shaking hands, hugging each other. Opponents are talking. Coaches are hugging opposing players. Like there's a lot of mixing going on in the field. So I haven't noticed any difference. Um, and I'm okay with it because I think for the most part all of us are vaccinated, you know, like I, I, schools are really high level vaccinated, whether it's 90%, you know, there's only one school I can think of, and I won't say their name here to call them out, but there's one school I can think of that has um, only, I think a 70% vaccination rate in the sec, but um, everywhere else is a super high vaccination rate. So I feel very safe in these moments and down on the field. And I kind of feel like it's been the same. The access has uh, been good. great. That's good. Yeah, good to know. Maybe, maybe uh, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, maybe my uh, maybe my thought process there was swayed by one game or not. But that's actually um, that's good to know uh, because obviously it's that that um, as Holly could tell you probably better than almost anybody in the world. Um, it is not easy to to keep a coach, uh, college football coach near you, a college football player near you. You know, there's a million people want their attention if they're uh, if they're an opposing coach. Generally speaking. You know, they have security or cops whose job it is to get them off the field as fast as possible. We saw that with Lane Kiffin. Um, so it's um, that's good to hear. That's actually really it's chaos right. down there. It's it's so it chaos. it's so yeah. chaotic and it's it's never it's never really easy. So that that's a huge piece of the job. That's always hard. Like you got to run. You've got to make sure the police officers know you so they'll let you in the circle of trust. Like it's always chaos. Do the are the. Uh, it just it sort of comes to me because it's just kind of interesting. Are the more well-known coaches or the more famous coaches, the Sabins of the world and uh, people like that, are they usually, um, do they sort of know the drill? Oh, so my that God. They may, yes. They'll stick around closer to you than maybe, uh, I don't know, a first or a second year coach who's not necessarily, um, I don't know, who yeah. this is not old hat for? Oh, they, they look for me. Like I, I've had, I've heard coaches, Hey, where's Holly? You know, they turn and look, as soon as they do the handshake, they turn and look because they know you're looking for them. And 
Um, th- this week was kind of interesting because I chose to go with two players because Oregon had a huge upset or not upset. I guess it wasn't upset from a betting standpoint because they were underdogs going in, but a big win on the road against UCLA and uh, Travis died. Their running back had had a, a huge game four touchdowns. And then Kayvon Thibodeau had another incredible game with four and a half tackles for loss, three sacks, and he's from South Central LA. And so I decided that the story would be Kayvon and Travis. And so I did an interview Mario Cristobal, who I love and is a is a dear friend of mine. And so I, after the game, went and told him, hey, I'm going to go with the two kids. You know, please, th- there's reasons why I think these are stories. And he's like, absolutely. Like, he loves that we're storytelling about his kids and his team. So I just think it's a, a key of communication, like just really communicating. And you're, by the way, you've, uh, I mean, you've also nailed it on the head. Like at, at the end of the day, like th- this is a million dollar publicity tool for these coaches to get on national television and to, uh, you know, and to pitch their product. There's a, certainly a larger podcast discussion that one could have about college football. I'm not going to have that right now with Holly Rowe, but like the reality is like they, they, they should be looking for you. Cause it's only good for their, um, it's only good for their program. And by extension, their, um, their job security. All right, let's finish this up with the, the WNBA, obviously a league, both you and I, um, uh, have a lot of interest and care for, um, once again, Holly, uh, you look at the numbers at the end of the year, the viewership numbers, and they were up, um, most viewed finals, I think since 2017, uh, most viewed postseason in a couple of years. And again, postseason was up double digits. WNBA has a very good viewership story. Um, I will say this to you, and you don't have any control over this, okay? You are an on-air talent. You are not a programmer. But one of the things I always harp at, and you know on Twitter I do this all the time, is I would like to see these games, the finals certainly on ABC, but I would like to see you know, more of these important games in the playoffs only on ESPN as opposed to ESPN2. And quite frankly, the finals should be on ABC, in my opinion. Have internally you heard anything, any kind of push towards this. I know the league wants this, but at the end of the day, it's ultimately ESPN programmers, uh, Disney programmers who can, who can make that happen. But I really truly believe if, if they, if the league had that kind of promotion, you know, you would see 700, 800,000, close to a million. If we get to a game five people watching those games and it would, it would be a really good story for the league. Yeah. I have to be careful with what I say here, because like, if you could read me and Ryan Rucco and Rebecca Lobo's text chains, I could share with you. Um, Can you send that to me, please? That sounds like a great story for me. Oh my gosh. We are pushing (laughs) this exact same thing that you just said. Um, I don't know all of the behind the scenes for programming. And so I don't want to say something and put my foot in my mouth or get in trouble, but um, for example, this game five on s- last Sunday, why that was not on ABC, I really won't ever understand. And I would love game for four, are you saying game game four, the game final four, game? Yeah, series sorry, game four. yeah, okay. Um okay. because as far as we could tell, it maybe was taped programming on I I, I don't know. You, you was, yeah. maybe dig in, in a lot of cities it was paid programming. You are correct. Yeah, and so like, like we're we're kind of like, what what is happening? You know, we get frustrated and we have a new boss on that. Um Dave Roberts is a new boss, and we actually had a meeting with him that day, the day before the game. And we pushed hard and we're like, we need this, we need this, we need this, we need this. And we're like laying out our wish list. And I'm I'm teasing him. I'm like, hi, I'm Holly Rowe, and I'm the angry emailer at ESPN. Because I'm constantly emailing our bosses, like, what are we doing? Let's do this. Let's do, you know, so 
you know, I hope they don't mind me pushing, but this is a passion project for me. And I know you know that is I, I push the WNBA and that's who I am and I'm always going to do it. So, yeah, I do think we need to be having those conversations. I do know that some people have said to me before it's contractual. So I think that part of the WNBA contract might be for ESPN2. I, I don't know all of that, but, you know, maybe you should talk with Kathy Engelberg because what I would love to see her do is for her to push ESPN. We need better windows because we've earned it. You know, in, in years past, they would say, well, it doesn't rate or we whatever's rating gets the better window. Well, now it's rating. It's rating. It's rating. It's the hottest product right now in sports. You know the sports marketplace and ratings story better than anyone in America or Canada, for that fact. I'm not sure of that, but but, but, yeah. but you I would know, say this, right? Do, you know that right. it's a good it's rating. a good story. I will say I could just I could t- I didn't mean to interrupt you. I could tell you that Kathy Engelbart, because a couple of us asked her on a conference call during the finals, and she said that the league obviously wants the best windows possible. They it's st- she's still sort of doing a little of what you're saying in that she says that the league still needs to sort of get better viewership numbers to sort of make that make 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 it have no choice for you know ESPN or Disney etc but i would just say that at this point i feel like what the league has done over the last couple of years i think they've proven that if you put them on a big distribution a larger distribution place I think people will come and people and people will. Yeah, I keep tweeting that. That's like my mantra right now is if you build it, they will come. And what I have learned through my 25 years of covering women's sports for every single outlet in the world is that if you give them a big platform, people will watch it because it's a good product. And that goes for softball. We put softball, college softball for the first time ever on ABC this year. Great rating. Oklahoma, Washington, NCAA tournament, great rating. Um, So women's tournament, WNBA, when it's on ABC rates well. So part of that argument is give people the same platform. If you give equal platforms and then, then talk about it. But the women's product has shown, if you put it on a good platform, it will rate well, period. Gymnastics. So so here's Yeah, you're right about softball, which has always been sort of a hidden gem. So here's the last thing I'll just sort of add, and then we'll let Holly go because she clearly has 87 jobs and needs to (laughs) do some work on these other jobs. So you may be like, oh, you know, stop with this nonsense, blah, blah, blah. You're just being woke. You just, but it's not the case. The, The NCAA Women's Basketball Championship game this year between Stanford and Arizona. And again, women's basketball has one that I give ESPN a lot of credit. They have pushed it. Um, they have placed it on ESPN. They have they have they have done a lot of promotion in the sport. They have treated it first class. So this year's final, like two by the way, two Pac-12 teams. So you're not even talking about geographic difference. You're talking about two teams in the same area. Four point one million viewers, most watched women's basketball champion. So think of it. That's four million. That's that's not two hundred thousand. That's four million viewers. That's that's a significant you know, college football rating, non like big SEC game or something like that. That's not so far that that's that's what, you know, MLB will do in the postseason prior to the World Series. So I'm totally with you, Holly. Like eventually, if the sports, you know, if the big sports, and we're talking about the WNBA, in this case women's basketball, women's softball too, if they get enough promotion and they get enough good windows, there is an audience there. I'm not saying you do that with every single sport, but 
the, the country is passionate about basketball. And so I'm with you on this being a pet project that like, I just feel if WNBA, particularly at that ABC window of, you know, if you could work with the league to put the finals on ABC, even if it was an afternoon finals, I, I think I think you'd see you would see a significant viewership bump, and that way everybody wins. That's my that's yeah. My I feel like it's a democracy, right? Is people get to vote with their viewership, and so the the people that voted voted that this is a good product, and they want to watch it, so it gets to win and continue to get good platforms, right? That's what I think it should be. Is um, they, they keep moving the finish line because they keep saying, well, we'd put it on if it rates better. Well, now it's rating better. So now what's your story? Yeah. Right. Right. So, I agree. So let's 100%. put it on. And I just I do want to say this because I don't want to seem like this is a negative at all is people get on ESPN for a lot of different things. No company in the world has had more of a devotion and uplifting and commitment to women's sports than ESPN. We televise more women's sports, and we have done for 20 years. So I want to give ESPN all the credit that they get because we've been putting this on for a long time and investing for a long time when nobody else would. But now we also have to be the same leaders that we have been in this marketplace and keep elevating. So that's that's what I want to say because we've been awesome. I don't want us to have a negative connotation at all because we've been dedicated and devoted like nobody else. All right, that's well said. All right, Holly Rowe is uh, an ESPN reporter and uh, uh, um, analyst on college basketball, college football, the WNBA, college softball, many other gymnastics, many other properties. You now can find her on uh, Utah Jazz Games, as she said, a positionalist uh, analyst with her colleagues uh, Craig Bullerjack and Thurl Bailey. So that's very, very cool. If you have the basketball packages I do, um, it's kind of cool to hear Holly Rowe's voice uh, on a basketball broadcast as uh, you know Rudy Gobert or the rest of the Jazz are doing something. Uh, Holly, great to catch up with you. Congratulations on um, on all your success. Please come back when you add another job, which should be next week, I'd imagine. <laughs> And thank you for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. And I I know I always say this to you, but I appreciate you so much for your passion and devotion to women's sports and women's basketball. Thank you for lifting us up and caring about it and writing about it. It matters a lot to me, and I really appreciate it. All right, stop day drinking, Holly. But thank you very much. I, (laughs) I appreciate that. Holly Rowe, everyone. Everybody loves Holly Rowe. Thank you, Holly. All right, as I promised at the top, I mean, and what a treat for me to have him back on this podcast. It's Jimmy Trena, a writer, producer for Sports Illustrated, the host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. That's certainly familiar. And every day, usually around like noon or one o'clock, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, Jimmy, that's when your column comes out at, at SI.com, correct? Correct. Every day. Thank you for the plug, Trena Thoughts, every day on SI.com. Yeah. All right. It's, so, it's, it's, uh, it's rough because back. thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I know I'm in some esteemed company. <laughs> yes. You're, you're always in esteemed, uh, uh, company. Sorry. Where should we start? I mean, I eventually want to, we should probably, I mean, I don't want to start on the big podcast wars in the sports media space. So let's, let's, you know, let's again, let's focus on, let's focus on the issues here. Let's get to the issues. And so here's honestly where I want to start with. So I have a piece coming out. Uh, by the time people listen to this, I think, unless you're really early, and if you're really early, I appreciate you very much. But I talked to um, 
I talked to the sort of the point person, Jimmy at Amazon, uh, when it comes to Amazon sports, Marie Donahoe. And, um, and I'm really interested in Amazon in 2022 because, you know, they get exclusivity, uh, 15 game schedule that, you know, the media rights deals that the NFL did, there certainly are a lot of interesting things there, but by and large, like there's still a lot of sort of traditionalness to the deals. This is really the, the one that sort of is sort of futuristic in that Thursday night football, unless you're in a home market, you have to now have Amazon prime if you want that game. And so I'm, let's start with this. I'm just, you know, you're a huge football fan. Do you, what kind of a driver do you think that will be in terms of the NFL fan who desperately wants to watch Thursday Night Football no matter what? Is that, I don't know, would you get it if you didn't have Amazon? So right off the bat, we have a vintage 10-minute Richard Deitch question. No, yeah, no we don't, we don't tighten anything up on the Richard Deitch podcast. It's always a long yeah, question. Sorry. Listen, I think if you are a legitimate NFL fan, I think you will most likely reach out and get Amazon prime. If you don't have it, I think Amazon's reach is so massive that I don't think this is as drastic as let's say, you know, NFL Sunday ticket goes to Apple TV or goes to uh, ESPN plus. I mean, Amazon I don't think people are going to be as upset about this as, you know, that week earlier in the college football season when the Notre Dame game was on Peacock only. It's not going to be like that. And I think, you know, listen. Although that was Notre Dame-Purdue, though. But yeah, no, it, was, it wasn't Purdue. It was like Toledo or something. It was a crap team. Toledo, yeah. right, right. Like, if you did that, let's put it this way. Like, if you just used Thursday, this week's Thursday Night Football game, okay? It's Packers-Cardinals. That's a mega. Imagine that was exclusive on Amazon only. That's a mega that could be that's a championship game preview. Well that was gonna be my answer and then you cut me off um as you as you're want to do. But I was what I was gonna say is let's say this was going on this year. I think if you're a casual fan, you're fine without Thursday night football. I don't think it matters to you at all. Then this Thursday comes it's Green Bay in Arizona and you might be inclined then to dip in and and make the plunge. But I also think again I I have to assume this one most people have prime. I don't think this is going to be as um, cause as much of a stir as, as maybe some other streaming issues. All right. So the next part of this is this. One of the things that obviously Amazon um, Amazon is sort of holding its uh, hat on. It's a terrible metaphor there. Is their like optionality. Like they have a scouts feed with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. They have uh, Andrew Kramer and Hannah Storm. Uh, give you a, their viewpoint on, you know, they're calling a game on one of the channels. They have like uh, Twitch features where you can basically like, ask people, ask NFL analysts questions. They have uh, um, probably going to have like natural sound next year where if you just want to watch the game on natural sound. Um, like, is do you think that's a, like, um, do you think Amazon could help change the way football fans watch games where as opposed to just like a, a uh, one-off megacast. The NFL fan eventually wants like megacast options for every game every week. I don't know. I, I don't. I, I I'd be surprised if the majority of fans want megacast options every week. I think the majority of fans might want a a second option where they can turn off announcers and turn off. I, I think what you said about the natural sound. I think a lot of people would be into that. I don't think people really need or care about having four or five options. Um, I, and I don't. I mean, I see that as sort of like a bonus, as gravy. I don't think anyone's going to sort of sign up 
for Amazon Prime because they get five options. So to me, it's more like Amazon's trying to show off and press the NFL. Look what we can do. The original, in terms of servicing the fans, I'm not sure that's what that does. Jimmy, what is is something going on in the background of you? I mean, like, I, let like me. I, I have a window. Like I, I have a window. What's going on there? Unbelievable. I mean, you're a professional. You know, you could hear that, Jimmy. Yeah, My I mean, apologies. it's really loud. It's it's as if you're going. Right, it's looks over. Like, uh, like Raiders My of apologies. the Lost Ark or My something. Apologies. You're like going through a cave. Yeah. Okay, all right, that's fine. All right, I asked too long questions, and you're not. Your background is terrible, so we're even now. Um, all right, you had Steve Levy on. Very good guest. Um, just given. Um, look at Patrick just uh, texting me to ask, "Am I leaving this in?" Yeah, of course. You're definitely leaving that part in, Patrick. People will be riveted to know I had my window open. Me getting Go ahead. On, giving on train. Getting on train is case. Um, so you had Steve Levy on as a guest, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, you you asked the right question in terms of you know how do you guys feel about the Mannings? Is there competition, et cetera? And he, you know, he said that our bosses are saying that the more people who you bring under the tent, the better. My question for you is: You add him on? Do you believe him? Do you believe that? You know, listen. I think if I think if Steve Levy or Brian Greaser or Lewis Riddick would have had an issue with this, it would have been when ESPN first announced it and when they found out about it. I think now that we're six weeks into the NFL season and they're getting 13 million viewers for a game and Payton and Eli are getting 1 million, I think that probably makes them feel a lot better. I mean, all you're hearing about is the success of Payton and Eli, and rightfully so. It's something we've never seen before. It's been a big hit. But if you're those three guys, you're you know, doing 12, 13 times more viewers than the Manning brothers. And that story is not being told. So maybe they're going to be frustrated with that part of it. But I think by now they're probably thinking like, okay, well, most people are watching us and this isn't something we really need to be that worried about. Yeah. The, the, um, you know, the Manning so far have topped out, I believe at 1.8, 1.9 million, obviously the, the, um, you know, the regular broadcast, whatever, you know, it is obviously very game matchup specific. It could be 11. And I thought Levy said something really, really interesting to me. He he said he could, he, he said he could understand or he could see maybe if Riddick and Greasy were annoyed, but he's not annoyed because the Peyton and Eli show doesn't have a host or a play by play person, I should say. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I think uh, I should be clear. Monday Night Football, I think last I checked, was averaging 14 million viewers over the first five weeks of the season. So there's your number. And then Peyton, Eli, obviously, yeah, whatever it is, you know, one, one point something. Um, but yeah, that's a really, that's an interesting point by Levy. Here's my th- question for you. And this is like fascinating to me. Uh, it probably would be a good column um, to write. If one week, Jimmy, it flipped, okay? You put the Mannings on ESPN. And you made the uh, – you're not going to do this, but just play along. You made the Levy, Greasy, um, uh, Riddick broadcast, the alternative slash megacast broadcast. Do you think the numbers flip? Do you think the Mannings draw more? Do you think the Mannings draw less? Oh, I think they absolutely draw more. I mean, so many people are just uh, programmed to go to ESPN for Monday Night Football. I even had – I mean, someone – I wrote about the Mannings, I think, after maybe week – I don't know if it was three or. F- well, I mean, by the way, I mean more. I mean more than what ES the, the main. Oh no, no, def- definitely. Obviously, not. I no, know. Th- no, you- definitely not. Okay, so you, so then you're saying so in that sense, like you don't. So you don't think if Peyton and Eli were the host 
of Monday Night Football, they're drawing like sixteen million, where the Levy crew's drawing fourteen. No, because that because two million extra people are not tuning in for the. It's still about the game, right? I agree. It's still about the game, so they can do whatever they want with the booth, paint me like this, that, switch it up. It, it, it's about the game, so it's not gonna. They're not gonna add viewers if the game is a dud. My thought about this is that. Um, it's a, you know it's not necessarily some genius take, but I think very clearly that if Peyton Manning wanted to be a NFL game analyst, either on CBS, NBC, or Monday Night Football, he would have done it already. So like that white whale is sort of done, and I don't expect even with the critical praise, and even though it looks like Peyton himself is having a great time doing this, I don't expect Peyton Manning to be, you know, in two or three years the Monday Night Football analyst. I'm sure ESPN would love that. But I think I think the Mannings have done it right, and particularly Peyton. Like you, um, you don't work a full schedule. You get to do it from your home. You own half of it, and you have your own producer. Like you know what I'm saying, Jimmy? It's like a dream deal in in media. I mean, listen, why, why on earth would it, you? Why on earth would you then want to travel 17 weeks a year on Monday Night Football? You know what I'm saying, and not have that kind of autonomy? Well, there's only one thing, and it's money. And I don't know. Listen. Whatever Peyton and Eli's financial portfolio is, it's probably pretty good. As you know, a legendary wrestler of the 80s always said, everybody has their price. Now, listen, is there a f- everything I've heard from multiple people who know? You know, one of the things I, I do feel bad about ESPN is, you know, when ESPN, when Peyton and Eli took three weeks off, people were hammering ESPN. Right. ESPN would have them on every week. They it's Peyton and Eli. Every hour. Peyton, right. It's a, the fact of the matter is Peyton Manning does not want to work 17 weeks a year. Just a fact. Peyton does not want to work 17 weeks. Now, is there a figure next year, the year after the year after that can get him to work 17 weeks? I don't know. I would assume there is because I do think everybody has a price. Is it a price ESPN and Disney would go to? I don't know. But- I, w- if, I would not expect to see much change. They're on this three-year deal where they do the 10 weeks. I'm sure they're happy with the publicity they're getting. I don't see why they would change it and, and do something different. I like you quoting the Million Dollar Man. I don't think everybody has a price. I think many people have a price. But I think in his situation, like y- you've already banked $100 million or, whatever, or more in the, in the bank. Like getting paid $24 million a year versus $2 million a year. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, is that really going to be the game changer? I didn't, first of all, ESPN is not paying that, but I don't know. I, again, I feel like, I feel like he, he has done something that I think all of us sort of aspire to do in media. And that's create your own schedule, create your own autonomy and still do something really cool. So I don't see it. Well, that's, that, and and his deal isn't nearly as good. The person who's done that better than anyone is Howard Stern. Yeah, I mean, of course, but that's a. I mean, Howard Stern. Play, he's playing in a different universe, than, right? Than, than but I'm saying he, that's a guy who got his own schedule three yeah. days a week. Yeah, I know, and you know, should be sort of a model for how the. You know, I, I don't know. You know, in sports, you get. You would think in sports you have to be there every week. Peyton and Eli are showing you don't. Yeah, boy, I can't believe the uh, who's taking some shots at Stern. Rogan, some others. A lot of people. Yeah, I know. It's it's very easy now to sort of take the shot at Stern and be like, uh, he's gotten old, he's sold out, blah blah blah. But um, you know, I, I will always respect what uh, 
what Howard did and what Howard built. Um, and I'm still a big fan of his, uh, the people who, uh, a lot of people who work with him, the JDs of the world, et cetera. All right. Um, I want to talk about the World Series real quick. If we, I mean, I don't have any buzzers or like sound effects here. I mean, I can do that if you want, if we're moving on to another topic. Um, so here's the thing with the World Series. Um, you know, the Astro, Houston's a big market, and the Astros are a polarizing team. So I definitely think there's interest in people wanting to see them lose. Atlanta's a big market. Um, still, I feel like pretty much a regional team, but a regional team that extends beyond Georgia. That said, my sense is that this World Series is not going to rate well. It'll blow away 2020 for sure, because obviously everything was down the pandemic, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, unless this thing goes seven, I see like 12 million, 11 and a half million, 12 and a half million. It doesn't feel like a mega world series to me. What about you? I'm talking about national interest. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. Um, I think, you know, I think 11, 11 and a half million is what it's going to be. I don't think I, the one thing major league baseball and Fox has going for it. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but the one thing they have going, the only thing they have going for it is the Astros cheating scandal. And is, is the fringe fan going to come in and watch to root against them? I think, I, I think it's been too long. I don't think, you know, I think people, uh, I, I don't know if you're going to watch four or five baseball games just to root for the Astros to lose. And I just think this is a completely unsexy matchup. That's got very little buzz. So I would be shocked if, uh, they did better than the 2019 World Series. Uh, I agree with you on that 2019 thing. So here's one thing. I was just looking at the schedule just to keep in mind. Okay, game five, Sunday night. So they're going. I don't know who's playing on Halloween for Sunday night football, but that's obviously um, that's obviously tough. Do you know who it is? That's yeah, of course I know who it is. It is the Cowboys and Vikings. Oh, jeez. All right, so, it's the Cowboys. Yeah. All right, so that's, that's, right. A, that's a bad matchup for baseball. Game six right. would be on a Tuesday. Game seven would be on a Wednesday. Um, off the top of my head, I mean, obviously, you know, one's an NHL night. There's obviously basketball going on. So th those two nights, unless I'm missing something, don't strike me as competition problem nights if, they, if it gets to six and seven. So if it gets to, you know, if it gets, if it gets a little bit of runway, um, you know, they'll be okay. Am I right also, Jimmy? Game four, Saturday, October 30th is... I think, am I right? Like, is Georgia football playing a night game on that day? Because I, I think somebody told me that that was something to pay attention to, and that would really, I think, take away some viewership if uh, if that's the case. I, I thought they were <laughs> yeah filibuster, Jimmy. I, as I look for this, All right, Georgia no, no, playing, got it. Georgia's playing Florida, so that's an afternoon game. So you it's can actually three thirty. It's a yeah. three thirty right, game. So that's the uh, cock, the great cocktail party, or whatever they call that game. Um, all right. So that if you know what, if you're a Braves fan, you, you'd be able to swing both. Um, so I don't I don't think that impacts the viewership number. At all. But I'll be curious. I'll, I'll really be curious to see, um, you know, maybe we're, our instincts will turn out to be wrong and that that series blows up. I'm sure Fox is going to, you know, Mike Mulvihill and company will definitely be pushing the best numbers possible for that series. Well, they'll, um, they'll, they'll compare all the numbers to last year. Well, of course, yeah, you got it, yeah. <laughs> which is what everybody does. Right. Um, all right, one more baseball one, then we'll do some randoms. Yep. Uh, do you care who gets the Sunday Night Baseball uh, announcing job? As long as A-Rod's not there, I don't care. Yeah, It's I, fine. I, I mean, so much talk about – I mean, I, I guess because it's a national broadcast, 
people are interested, but like, yeah, I'm, the problem is, I'm, I'm so a rotted out that I don't even care that much about that booth. So my issue with like Sunday night baseball, Yankees play on it. I don't know, three, four or five times a year, whatever it is. So it's not something that's like going to affect your life that much. It's you talk about three or four nights and what you want from that booth, whether it's call ravage, book, whoever, you know, they'll all be fine. What you want is you don't want you don't want the game destroyed because of the booth. That's what the A Rod booth does. I, I so I agree. I think I, they need it. It's I love. I would love to see Benetti get it. I think Benetti's the best. Um, yeah, anyone would be fine. I don't. I don't think gonna... he will get it, but I, I would love to see him get it. But I'm with you. It almost doesn't matter. Like all the people you mentioned are all they're all fine play by play. They could all do it fine. It has to be an analyst that just doesn't overwhelm you as a viewer, right? Or else, then why am I watching this thing again? I, I can't say I watched much the last year or two, maybe, but when they, when A-Rod first did it and I didn't realize how horrific he would end up being, you know, the issue too is not just A-Rod. It's actually, it's ESPN turning the game into the A-Rod show. I mean, they were cutting to the booth to show him on camera every five minutes. You don't do that with a baseball analyst. They're, they're star, they're, sometimes that company gets sort of just star fucking. They just get obsessed with famous people they got obsessed with magic once upon a time they certainly got obsessed with a rod and i don't know what it is because like you know what and you know this like you both of us have watched enough tv like like the first time someone comes in like their star matters like it's interesting like you want to see wayne gretzky on like tv right talking about hockey but after that it becomes what is the person saying it's no longer about the star but espn but i I also think never forgot that or are they, I'm saying, they, I, I'm saying, take it back. They never, they never changed up on that. Go ahead. But I also think, I also think ESPN enjoyed the fact that A Rod was getting bashed on Twitter every Sunday night because because oh, it, it's because it's publicity. I, because if it wasn't for him, no one would ever talk about Sunday night baseball. Uh, yeah, I mean, unless it's a matchup, right? Unless you know, I mean, the fact is, when the Yankees and the Red Sox play, it gets really good numbers and like it's fun to watch. But um, but yeah, I mean, he was the driving. I mean, again, to me, I think he's actually a very good studio analyst. I think in small bites, I think he's good. Very good, in fact. It's just over the course of two or three hours, it's it's too much. It's 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 overwhelming. At least I can only speak for myself. It's just overwhelming um, as a viewer. And I also think I don't I think mean, he's, listen, I also don't he's not I also don't think he's as a game analyst, I just don't think he's that great, you know? Well, he's not. And for me, on top of that. He just, to me, he has a, zero credibility. Like there's just, no, I went back yeah. recently, right. I, I went back recently and watched the interview he did with Mike Francesa on Yes. When oh my God, he got famous, all, yeah. well, he I mean, lied repeatedly you, for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm going to have him tell me about the players and what they're doing. It's just, I can't take him seriously. That wasn't, if you look back in time. That's an amazing interview to look. Back I'm telling you, I, I watch it again because I recently yeah. watched it. And you can't even believe it's just the arrogance, the lying is, you know, and I'm talking yeah. about a rod, not Mike, which is usually. <laughs> yeah, this will be only for our New York audience. But if you ever want to Google something else incredible, check out Michael O'Keefe's interview with Mike Francesa during that time. Was it Michael yeah. O'Keefe, the investigator yes. reported Daily, Daily News. News and yeah. Francesa just like. Wouldn't know he refused to let him talk, and Michael O'Keefe had it. I mean, he really had a Rod pegged, and um, yeah, I'm um, just an amazing time. All right, uh, you, I, I saw on Twitter. I was fascinated by this. You are not, you do not like the red zone. 
Can you explain this? Yeah, I've gone through this street. I wrote a column about it. I've gone through it. There's a lot of context that needs to get into it. I, I, I let on. me just we got all the time I, in the world. Let me just say this. I think Andrew Siciliano and Scott Hansen do an amazing job, and I understand why everyone else likes it, and I understand why it's popular. For me personally, I had direct TV for 20 years. For 20 years, I watched the Game Mix channel, which was eight games at once, and then they also, in the later years, they had two, two Game Mix channels. One would be four games at once. That's what I watched every Sunday for 20 years. And then, I, and then, you know, by the second half of the games, if one game's out of control, then I would lock in on the games I want to get locked in on. That's how I like to watch football. I don't like to watch just red zone. For me, it's the example I gave is yesterday on Sunday, the lions and Rams are playing a one possession game late and red zone cuts away to show the bucks on first and goal at the one when they're up 35-3. Now, I understand their whole shtick is every touchdown, every field goal, everything in the red zone. I don't give a flying, you know what about the I don't play fantasy. Well, that's I, the that you just right. hit on. You don't play fantasy, right. and, but you do gamble, though. Right. Yeah, but I want to watch the game. So f- for me, there should be a channel that's for, like, football fans, not fantasy football fans or red zone fans. I don't... I don't understand the value. Yeah, that channel CBS or Fox. Well, no, but right? not, not if I can't get the game. I couldn't. Right. I couldn't. Oh, okay, right. I mean, I can get it in other ways. But my point is, I don't see the value in showing me first and goal from the one in a game that's 35-3 with five minutes left when the Lions are trying to drive down the field to get a, you know, a lead with three minutes left. Like, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it at all. So here, here's what I would say. I understand I mean, it because it's called the Red Zone Channel, but that yeah, no. <laughs> doesn't appeal to me. You make, but I'm saying, like, at least you explained that. That was kind of interesting. I would say two things. Tell me if you agree with me. One, I think clearly because you don't play fantasy, it, it, it absolutely the uh, the usefulness of that channel, the functionality of that channel is very different right. than you. And then secondly, I think some of this is a product of age, right? Because you, every person under 25, under 30, I think likes the idea of watching almost highlights, real-time highlights of a game as opposed to watching a full game. You're still, you you know, you were of the generation still that would sit down and watch a full game. So I, that, to me, are the two things. I'm, I mean, I'm not even criticizing you. I, I think it's just interesting because you're, you're um, most people in your position, you know, somebody who, who like, works for a media entity, someone who writes uh, about sports on a daily basis, like, loves the red zone. You're an anomaly in this because everybody loves, almost everybody in your position, generally speaking, is a big red zone fan. But I think a lot of those people just know the red zone. I had DirecTV for 20 years. I had every game available to me, and I had the game mix. So coming from that to red zone was a, is, is a major adjustment that I have not adjusted well to. And, you know, to clarify, too, because when I tweeted that, because everyone on Twitter is so dumb and idiotic, I was getting a lot of responses where people took me as trying to say, um, I'd rather not have red zone and just have one national game. They're like, Oh, have fun. Then watching your one. That's not my, no, my not point was that. about yeah. the way the red zone does the, does it. Yeah. And I get it. They're going, they're going to bucks bears at 35, three because they the schmuck to, at home of, is once Mike Evans to score a touchdown for his fantasy. Correct. I get yeah, it. I mean, that's I part of, right. that's part of, yeah, I wouldn't call him the schmuck at home. I mean, that's right. part of the, that's well, part of the fun that a lot of people have. If, in, in if you're still playing fantasy, you're a schmuck. Believe me, getting rid of it was wow. the greatest thing I've I, ever I, done in my entire life. Jimmy, let's be clear. That's a Jimmy trainer. I need, I want the downloads. Last one for me. And again, if there's something else you want to bring up, 
um, feel free. So, you know, there's a lot of new sports podcasts out there, Jimmy, in the market, sports media podcasts. I love what John Lewis is doing, uh, Dr. John Lewis, the uh, uh, sports media watch. I think that's cool that there's a, a, a ratings podcast. I know there's another one that's funded by, you know, the big corporate in- interests, from what I understand, out there on the sports media uh, podcast. So my question for you is, what do you subscribe to? In terms of just this is this is where it gets into our love of wrestling, okay? The, the, Vince McMahon and WWE went for generations, never mentioned the competition. Do not mention the competition at all. I guess they a couple of times they they uh, they sort of would fall back on that, like in two thousand and one when Vince bought WCW and just wanted to mock WCW, right? But as a general rule, that that's been the WWE premise, and they don't do that. Conversely, WCW, Eric Bischoff, even AEW now, like they'll mention the the competition, uh, and they'll mention the big dogs, and maybe that's because they were the the underdogs. How, where do you stand on this? Should 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 we one are other sports media podcasts co- competition for me and you, and two, do you do you follow do you subscribe to the Vince McMahon? You know, Triple H, Steph McMahon don't mention the competition, or do you mention the competition? No, I'm fascinated I, I, by what you're what you're going to say here. It's such a ridiculous question. I, I, I have the quote-unquote competition on my podcast. Like, Brian Curtis, her media podcast for The Ringer. I have them on my podcast. Andrew right. Marchand and John Oran are doing a media podcast. They're on my podcast. So right. I, I don't really – I'm just really worried about my own podcast. I really don't worry about any other podcast, to be honest with you. Do, do more sports media podcasts help us in that it's sort of all the t- talk and interest in the content – rises all the different sports media podcasts um, i don't know i don't I, I i don't think so i don't know i think people listen to who they like i don't think the quote-unquote competition really matters yeah well this segment hasn't gone nearly as uh, well i mean as, what as do you i, I mean do you, you clearly have some issues you want to get off your chest if you want to <laughs> no i don't i'm, I'm just I mean, screwing around i will i'll tell you the one issue i do have though is i'm, I'm being told by uh listeners that my the old sports illustrated media podcasts that i hosted are being are being cut they're into the ether you can't get like episodes one through 50 anymore my guess is that my guess is that's an apple why isn't that on the archive why isn't that the wwe network where is that my guess is that that's an apple deal i don't i I can assure you no one from si is actually cutting podcasts we don't we, we don't really have the staff to do that i would assume it's an apple issue by the way do you want to know who is do you know who episode number one was i do not I have no idea. <laughs> Rachel Nichols and Adam Schefter. I thought you were going to say Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor. <laughs> um, wait, Rachel Nichols and Adam, and Adam Schefter. Schefter. Yeah. Oh, so, that, May, so you May were trying 20, to cause a big May, splash with episode one May instead of, of spreading them out. Yeah, May of 2015. I'm trying to, I wish I could remember who number two was. It might have been Vern Lundquist. Have you ever had and Charles in, Barkley on and that hey, podcast hey, or, this, no, or this podcast? No, not have. Uh, well, that's a good question, Jimmy. I feel like I may have had Charles on the Sports Illustrated Media podcast once. Um, I usually save that for, you know, either SI.com or in this case, The Athletic. But I don't, it, it, it honestly wouldn't have been more than one. What about you? Have you had him on? No, he won't come on. I don't know what's going on. Seems like the one guy you haven't gotten. I know. Um, Not for lack of trying. Anybody else who, uh, who just for whatever reason? You got Romo. Um, That's a very hard guy to get. I mean, I tried to get Larry David. He wouldn't come on, but I mean, that's, yeah, that's not really a, that's a in terms of, idea. in terms of sports media, is there anyone who I've tried who wouldn't, the only one I, I think is Barkley. I'm trying to think if, 
I'm trying to think if there's anyone I tried and they said no. I I, I really think it's just Barclay yeah, I, at this I can't. Point. I mean, I just honestly, I, have you I tried? Have you ever gotten Adnan Verk on? I mean, that's a hard one to get. I have. He was a great guest. I want to have him on again soon. <laughs> he actually, is a good guest. he's a very good guest. He's he's a, he listens to both. He, he's listening. Uh, I guess the other one would be Simmons, Bill Simmons. I have tried. I did back in the day. I mean, it's been a long time, but I did try to get him on, and um, I was always turned down. By but he's not going to do a podcast outside of the no room. Chance, there, so. No chance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, why would he? Uh, doesn't really know. I don't think there's any value to him doing a non uh, ringer podcast. Yeah, I'm seeing. So I'm looking right now as we're talking. Like the back from the day, episode 87 of the Sports Illustrated Media podcast is like the one, maybe the earliest one I could actually listen to. That was Jeff Schwartz. My guess Paul is that Fein, they must be Paul Feinbaum, episode 89. My guess is they must fall off week to week. I would maybe. assume. Wow, look at look at the. Look, I don't even. I, I'm looking at some of these interviews. I have no memory, Jimmy, of doing. Yeah, I mean that's I I have that. Same I'm sure thing. it's the same with you, right? Yes, absolutely. Like my friends will be like, "Oh, I remember so and so was on there." I'm like, I have no recollection of that. Yeah, I mean it's I had Lewis Riddick on in 2018. I forgot about that. Anyway, all right. Listen, I always enjoy uh, when we when we get together for this podcast. I mean, again, if if circumstances were different, I mean, I could see us co-hosting it. I just I I don't see that obviously that possibility happening given you know you work for Sports Illustrated. This is not an athletic podcast. This is my podcast, so I you know I own it and you know whatever that means quote unquote. So it would be hard for us to to hook up, I think, and do it as much as I think that would be a fun thing to do. Yeah, I w- I'm not particularly looking for a partner at the moment, but right, well, there you go. If things change, I can let you know. I did. I'm I'm, I'm a little solo artist. I, I'm a little annoyed you didn't ask me one thing, though, about are you not? Fa- I'm fascinated to see Vince McMahon in WWE running scared from AEW. They're not running scared. That's insane. Oh, I think they're running scared. I love. Listen, I love AEW. I think I, it's it's I think they're a phenomenally interesting company. I love the moves that Tony Khan has made. And but I mean, Jimmy, one company is still is, is I mean, is still like global international i mean they got a bigger market share then how come then why did i I mean what's running maybe 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 i have to need your definition of running scared what's running scared well i should ask i I guess i'm strictly talking from a television standpoint i mean the fact that the wwe would expand smackdown an extra half hour and go commercial free (laughs) you don't you don't think that's more petty than running scared i think it's both you know i you maybe i think with CM Punk over there and daniel bryan and you know you eventually you'll get bray wyatt over there who know you know uh, yeah. I, I think there's, I mean, okay, running, you're right, running scared is strong. But yeah, I mean, they have their attention. I mean, unquestionably. And I kind of love Tony Khan saying that, like, you know, I have enough money. I have more money than this guy. We can eventually, um, you know, try to outlast him. Um, you know, the most fascinating story for professional wrestling to me is, is what is the WWE post Vince? Like, what, like, would one, will it exist? Two, will they sell? Three, what would the what will the creative be? Um, because unless Tony Khan something crazy happens with Tony Khan, I would expect AEW to grow. I would expect him to continue to procure really good talent. And you know, as long as they don't do something incredibly stupid, like financially, I think they'll be a player. But the real, the big question is, what's the WWE? Right? I mean, like, what's that going to be ten years from now? Yeah, I, don't, I I can't worry about ten years. I'm 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 worried about like. Six months from now, not a not. But don't you, aren't, as a wrestling fan, aren't you happy that both companies exist? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh, listen, when you start off the sentence, as a wrestling fan, aren't you happy? Like, as a wrestling fan, I'd like better content, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, we all would, but I, I think by and large, I think AEW's content's been good. You agree? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm talking about from WWE. Yeah. Well, I think I, I don't, they they have to raise their game a little bit, but I I think some of the things they've done like actually lately are better. Um, I think they um, you know Becky coming back I think is interesting, and like I think Lesnar actually has had a nice little run here. They changed up the lineups a little bit, uh, but yeah, they also have some stuff that's just like it's really not good. It's too cartoonish and. It doesn't work. The one thing with AEW, and no one's going to listen to this part of the podcast. The one thing with AEW, tell me if you agree with me or not, is um, if they could just get a couple of more um, star, either develop women as stars or steal a couple of the stars from the WWE, that to me would be the game change. That's the one thing with the WWE is really in a phenomenal position still is between like uh, Bianca Belair, Becky, Sasha Banks, Charlotte Flair. They're just... There's, they have so many stars who are women who are who are main event draws. And I don't know if AEW has enough yet. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't sort of look at it as, you know, more women, more women, female stars, male stars. I, I, they just get stars. Doesn't, you know, they keep building, yeah, you know, uh, bridge, you know, they just gotta keep building and building and it'll turn. Or or you just procure as uh, as Tony did once a contract's up, you know, you 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 grab those guys like he did with uh you know. With Moxley and like he did with um, Daniel Bryan and I don't know who who's coming up. I'm sure there's some star coming up in WWE whose contract's coming up. All right, anything else? I feel like I feel like we've hit on a lot of different topics. Anything else? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't right. think this so. Is long, this is gonna be a long podcast for me. It's been. I feel like since the Rachel Nichols, Maria Taylor stuff, it's been quiet on the sports media front. I don't agree with that. I think there's a lot, lots been going on. But, uh, we need a good. Yeah, nothing is nothing. Nothing is like major as that. Right. Yeah. We need. We need. We're due for a good scandal or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not rooting. I'm rooting for sleep. All right. Jimmy Trainer is. I mean, listen. I mean, if you haven't heard of Jimmy Trainer, I mean, what are you even doing on this podcast? He's a writer, producer for Sports Illustrated, the host of the SI Media podcast. Uh, writer, Trainer thoughts. Check out his work on a daily basis on SI.com. Jimmy, as always, uh, thank you for coming on. Send my best to everybody at Sports Illustrated. And uh, you know, I wish you nothing but continued success heading forward in all your endeavors. Richard, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun as always. And don't le- lose any sleep over Oran and Marsha. All right. As I said at the top, um, I'm really pleased to be joined by Ivan Mazel who, if you're a college football fan, doesn't really need much introduction. One of the most um, well-known writers of his generation, very long resume with Sports Illustrated and ESPN. He's currently the vice president of editorial and a senior writer for On3. And his newest book, which is why he's here, is I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love, which is about his late son, Max. And I'm pleased to be joined by... Ivan Mazel on the Sports Media Podcast. How are you, Ivan? I'm fine, Richard. Thank you for having me back. You got it. So before we start on the book, which um, I've read most of, um, for for listeners here, what's on? Tell them what on3.com is if they haven't uh, become familiar with that yet. We turn the lights on August first. It's a startup. 
uh, Shannon Terry, the the uh, brains and business muscle behind who created Rivals.com and sold it to Yahoo, created 247sports.com and sold it to CBS, <clears throat> started a new venture. And we're, you're very heavily into college athletics, obviously a uh, heavy component of recruiting, which I'd have nothing to do with, a uh, heavy component of team-oriented sites, which we are either purchasing or starting, and then, and then me, you know, and, and the people that we will soon hire to help me cover college sports and, uh, and not only the, the news of it, but just the, the spectacle of it, why they seem to mean so much more to people, their fans than other than professional sports do. Do you, you know, one of the, the market, you know, obviously look at um, where I work, The Athletic obviously has a pretty robust college football presence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Yahoo has a college football presence, Sports Illustrated. Obviously, you have every, uh, you know, ESPN, I should have mentioned, obviously. You have every, um, you have every local, uh, local place that has a significant college football team, either has a, you know, a digital newspaper site or a newspaper site or whatever. So when you enter this market, Ivan, um, what's your, what's the pitch to people sort of to tell them that you, what, what's your, what's differentiating about what you guys want to do? Or do you want, are you trying to aim to be additive in addition to some of the established places that are out there? Uh, I think it's twofold. Uh, w- the way we're going to, and, and we are continuing to roll out features uh, in the next few days, we're going to roll out a database of recruiting information that is unlike, you know, that we've been building for months That's that will change how recruiting is, is at least viewed by readers. It's a huge historical database of, of recruiting. And so there's a heavy component of that. I mean, the, the other thing you know, and I don't want to uh, I say this more out of uh, not out of hubris, but the other thing we're adding is me. I mean, I, I you know, I've got credibility and I didn't have anywhere to write. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I can pull some people into the tent. You know, I, I honestly, Richard, I feel like the carnival barker. I'm in front of the paywall. The recruiting stuff is behind the paywall. And, and you know, I'm hope I'm hoping to get people to come check us out, and as we grow and learn from you know our mistakes and and hang in there with us, and and we're gonna you know I think we're doing a pretty good job. All right, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you uh, giving listeners sort of a a heads up on that. Um, sure. And yeah, we'll be looking out for that. Uh, you know, as I of course, uh, given they're paying me, continue to read the athletic. <laughs> um, which is very good yeah so here's uh, i want to um i want to get uh start on your book here and uh and start with a very um very broad question i think i know the answer to it but why did you want to write this book why was it important to you uh, a few reasons i didn't want max to be defined by how he died you know i wanted people to know who he was and I was so bad, Richard, at, at dealing with grief and dealing with people who were grieving because I just didn't want to be around death. I didn't, you know, I was scared of it. And then I got thrust into the middle of it. And, and in the course of 
learning to understand uh, how to carry my grief, how to carry that burden. I wanted to, I think the phrase I used in the book was be a docent for grief. You know, this is what happened. This is how we were comforted. This is how we were not comforted. And, and try to explain it a little bit to people in a way that maybe they won't be scared of it. One of the things um, that I learned um, after my mom passed away in March of 2020 was that there's no um, there's no roadmap for grief, and you no. have to seemingly be. Um, how do I sort of phrase this? You have to forgive yourself internally if, like, you're not doing what you perceive someone should be doing at a certain time when it comes to grief. Yeah, which I think for me was very hard to. Realize So like I think about her at different times and then there are times like where maybe I wasn't really Im impacted that somebody might have been like, wow, why were you impacted? Like, for instance, like the funeral that we had, which is right before like the whole world shut down in COVID, literally one week before, like I was sort of like working on adrenaline. I then like I, it, I didn't really feel anything. I was just there was sort of so much to do. And I my senses in reading your book um like you really, which I appreciate you, like you really explore like grief and like how we're supposed to feel or how we're not supposed to feel. One of the things I, my takeaway from reading your book was that like talking about Max and talking about grief is very cathartic for you. Like you don't want to hide from it. You're sort of exactly the opposite at this point. You want people to approach you on it. You want to talk about it. Well, look, you know, my relationship with Max, you know, I, I, one benefit you have in any human relationship is, is you can continue to build upon it. Uh, you know, if, if thing, if you get crosswise with somebody, you know, you can talk to them and build on it, uh, and get and move past it. You know, uh, I don't have that opportunity with Max anymore. Not that I was crossways with him, but, uh, I don't have any new memories of Max. Talking about Max keeps him present. And if people come to me and tell me a story about Max, that's a memory of Max that I didn't have that now I have, you know, and, and, mm. and five, you know, six, nearly seven years on that part doesn't really happen anymore, but I, you know, I, you want to keep him present. Uh, and, and you know, your point about grief, everybody's grieves differently. Uh, but the point is you have to grieve. And if you don't, you know, we told our girls, uh, who are, Max was the middle of our three children, that if you don't grieve and get it out on your timetable, then grief will come out when it wants to. And that may not be convenient for the rest of your life. So you need to, you know, I don't care. I said to him, I don't care what you do, uh, but you got to do something. You know, if you need to go to a counselor, go to a counselor. If you need to go for a run every day, whatever it is, do it. And, and even my wife and I did it very differently, but we trusted one another to do it and we didn't judge each other and how we did it. And that was all very helpful. How much of a challenge was it for you to write about Max knowing that Max isn't here? He can't proofread what you say <laughs> in many, in, in many ways you're um, providing the public experience of Max. Well, Max was uh, a very uh, shy person, uh, had very little confidence, uh, didn't want to be noticed. So he would be appalled at all of this. You know, I was looking, 
I was waiting to go on Good Morning America this morning, and and I'm you know they show the book cover on the big screen in Times Square, and that was my first thought. Oh my God, what how would Max respond to that? Um, uh, I I feel like uh, I you know I had a I wanted to tell people who he was, and um. And I don't, uh, I wanted to write, you know, writing is what I do. That's how I communicate and it's how I make sense of it. You know, and I I had to wait a little while just to get, you know, five years. I had to wait just to have the perspective to be able to see it and to be able to have my legs under me uh, so that I could apply my ability to tell a story to this personal subject. You know, I, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't have done it before then. How much, um, how much of the, you know, writing is a very personal process, as you know, and this is obviously an incredibly personal subject. You're writing about your late son. Um, how much of your chapters would you show your wife or your daughters prior to, um, uh, you know, prior to you ultimately showing it to your editor or prior to the pre-publication of it kind of stuff? I didn't show them anything until I finished the manuscript, and then I asked each of them oh, wow. to read it before I sent it to Hachette. Uh, and I, I finished it two weeks before it was due, so I had that time uh, to do so. And uh, the, the girls made some helpful suggestions, uh, and I explained to all of them, look, you know, if there's something you don't like, I'll take it out. You know, I'll fix it. Can't figure out how to fix it. I'll take it out. And if we can't all agree this is a good idea, then I'll send them their money back. You know, and, and there were some things. I mean, you know, Meg, they all they are all very clear, Richard. It's my story. It's not their story. But and there were some things in there that I, you know, that happened that, you know, I completely misinterpreted for Meg and she was pissed. And you know, I said, OK, I'll fix it. You know, uh, and I did. Uh, but other than that, you know, they recognize that this is what I do and this is, this is how I can make best, best make sense of it. You know, one, one of the things that, um, I imagine was, um, I don't know if eye opening is the right word, but like, you know, as a writer, you would have sort of acknowledged and, 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 and saw was that people are probably very hesitant sometimes to just ask about how you're doing or, um, you know, sort of what have you learned? I imagine then, you know, since Max's passing, probably a couple of years past, people aren't going to ask you about that every day, but they will again. And, you know, you're doing an, an interview with me about a book right now. So there's sort of a template that I could ask you in terms of questions, Ivan. But, you know, one of the things that was always curious to me was that did did you find that people, people close to and your friends, was it difficult for them to just even ask you questions about Max or how you were doing? Because it's not a, it's a hard thing to know, yeah. you know, how to ask, how someone's going to react to your questions. And again, I get back to what you had said, what you've said in this book is that you're, you sort of encourage it now, but that does go a little counter to almost how many of us are raised, you know I mean? Not to be prying and, yeah. and not to ask these hard questions. No, you're, you're right. And, and people want to be respectful. And, and, uh, uh, I, I had a lot of friendships that were affected by this, uh, people that, you know, either stepped up or disappeared and, and, 
the ones that disappeared, I, I understood completely because that was me. You know, I was, if I could, you know, gin up the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the balls to ask somebody, you know, how are you doing? Or, I, or say, I'm really sorry, I would do it once and then I would check that box and I wouldn't want to bring it up again. And it is a daily fight, you know, to get back to any semblance of, of whatever normal is. Uh, so uh, very, you know, people who are empathetic, and I, and I don't mean that to cast dispersions on anybody else, but, you know, good people who understand loss and grief understand that you check on them, you know, regularly, that you, you don't say, call me if there's anything I can do. You just go ahead and do it, you know, come over and rake my leaves, come over and, and you know, uh, they bring me dinner, you know, it, it's certainly in the early months. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it's, you know, American society and, and I'll include, you know, Canadian as well, I, I think have a, very difficult relationship with death and grief and people are scared of it. And, and if you live long enough, you're going to have to deal with it. So, uh, you know, and I've certainly found out in the, you know, the, I made it really hard on myself the way it happened to me. You know, there's a, there's always an instinct in reporters, at least most reporters that they want to know as much detail as they can about something, about a story, about, uh, uh, you know, their subject. For you, when it comes to Max's last days, um, how much how much do you still want to know? If if there was somebody out there somehow who could provide you with new information, is that something you'd want? Is that something you'd embrace, or or is that hard? Or will that would that be hard to sort of uh, uh, to learn? I I would like to hear it. I did not go looking for it. Uh, Meg, my wife. Uh, turned over every rock between Connecticut and and the RIT campus in Rochester. You know, she needed and needs to know everything, and I completely respect that. But I just felt like that was, and I said this to her in a teasing way. I felt like that was sticking my hand on the stove every day, and I, I just, you know, and I, it was not doing me any benefit to to do the you know, the, the, the tick tock of, of how he died. Uh, I, uh, I just couldn't figure out how it was going to, it wasn't really going to change anything. And, and if anything, it might make me feel worse, but that's what Meg needed to do. And, and I just, you know, I said, you go, you know, you do you, whatever you need to do, I'm behind you, but it was not for me. There's a part in your book uh, where you talked about uh, feeling panic after Texas USC uh, that famous historic game in, in 2006 national championship game. And, um, you know, anybody who's had any kind of deadline assignment, I think can, um, can empathize with, with, with that. There are some, obviously sports writers who are just so gifted that on deadline, they're amazing and they don't seem to feel the pressure. But there, there are probably many more who do. Um, but you had said that like, since in the last couple of years, um, you're more of an empathetic, like you find more empathy in your writing and, and, and you're not as, uh, I don't want to say you're not as invested, Ivan, but like, it's what is different, I guess, when you're writing a, a college football piece today in 2021, than you might've been in 2006 or, or 1995 or whenever. I think perspective, both from in a human sense of, of, 
of empathy and uh, and also the importance of this in the in the grand scheme of things. You know, I I used to think as I was relating in the book, like you know, the Texas SC game or whatever the big game was that year was, you know that all of the world stopped for this football game and that I had to chronicle it, you know, in a way that would reflect that. And, uh, you know, that that's not the case. Uh, and I think, you know, going through what I have gone through has provided me some perspective to where I can just, I'm a little more cold eyed with the event I'm covering and looking at it and say, okay, that's the story I want to tell and telling that story. And I think part of it also, Richard, had nothing to do with Max dying. It was just I learned at a very late stage in my career to trust my voice uh, and to, that I didn't need to tell you everything that happened in the game so that you could decide what was important. That's how I used to write. And uh, I, that was really out of fear more than anything. Uh, I finally learned to trust my voice to – watch the game, pick a couple of things to hang a column on or hang a game story on, write it, and just trust that the reader would trust me that that was the most important thing in the game. When um, when you first started um, sort of writing about Max, whether it was for the, um, like for a book or just sort of penning your notes down, was it you who thought – or was it you who conceived the idea that this might be a book or did someone, whether an agent or a friend or someone else say, you know, I think, I think you have a story here that's just goes beyond a, you know, a single article or a single, ma single magazine piece. Well, my, my form of grieving was to open this laptop and just pour everything out into it. And so I had that record of the first, that was really about the first 18 months after he died. And I, I knew, and I, I took a few, I took the, uh, eulogy I wrote for Max at the memorial service and I posted on Medium and then I wrote two or three essays in the first three years that I posted on Medium just at whatever stage of grief I was in. And and the book was always sort of out there. Was I going to do it? And there had to be a sweet spot in time of, okay, I had the perspective to do it and it wasn't so distant that I couldn't really remember the details. And you know, in the, in the universe pre presented last year on a platter to me, you know, the, the pandemic curtailed all the other work I had to do. And it was the right time. I had a friend of mine from college who demanded of me, when are you going to write a book about Max? And, you know, almost came over the table at me at lunch one day in Chicago when I was visiting her. And I was like, yeah, I think she's right. I think it's time. So that's how it came together. Yeah, you know, it's not like uh, you would have wished to leave ESPN, um, but it turns out that like maybe you know leaving ESPN also gave you like a larger window to um, you know to approach uh, this book. You you wrote you're very honest in the book about your contract expired ten and a half months after the onset of the pandemic, which is obviously a terrible time to be part of negotiations. I, I certainly understand that well. But you had a lot of success at ESPN. And I'm also really glad you put this in. You know, you, you, it was, you were the, <laughs> to me always, because I wrote about this, the, the key sort of conceiver of this College Football 150 project that they put a lot of money and resources and time in. And as you said in the book, it made them profit. $12 million in profit, you were told. So that, that that's an incredibly successful 
project. So on the one hand, you know, I I I, I appreciate how you approach the ESPN part because on the one hand, you were honest about, hey, this is not what I expected. I was not happy about it. On the other hand, I had a great run there and they were very good to me when my um, son passed. So you that that strikes me as a perspective of, of somebody a little bit older who could sort of compartmentalize um, different feelings, which I think is how we all feel a lot of times if we're laid off or fired, uh, because there are things about the organization still probably that we like, even though we're clearly not happy with the result of the immediate result of what happened. Yeah. And, and thank you for picking up on that. I, I think the decision was made out of, uh, necessity as you say it was terrible timing these are all financial decisions at the end of the nobody day. went to disneyland last year you know and, and and disney's hemorrhaging money and and they came to espn and said give us bodies and you know mine was was easy to give uh and i think also the the you know i, I think to a degree there is less of an appreciation of the website there under the current management than there certainly than there was as it was built up you know under john so skipper so uh it was just you know it was a very much of a control what i can control response to it and and uh you know i uh, i had a great run i have a lot of friends still there and 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 i found shannon terry and he found me and now i'm doing this i have one last question for you about the book and this is more of a um uh, a marketing question, which I didn't expect to, to to ask you about, or the PR of this book. If we were, Ivan, if we were not in a sort of pandemic universe, this would be the kind of book where I think a lot of places, whether it would be churches or temples or even bigger places, corporations, would want someone like you to come in and to talk about sort of grief and how you process grief and how you dealt with this you know, unfathomable tragedy for many people, apparent losing their, their child. But we're in still the middle of sort of this pandemic. Travel is not the same as it was. And so are you able to get out at all to, 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 to talk about the book or does everything for the most part with you have to be via Zoom and, and via virtual? How's that working? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I have set up uh, about an 18 to 20 stop tour. And so far, I'd say about 25 to 30, you know, a quarter to a third of them have decided to do it virtually. Uh, and, but some I'm, I'm going to hit the road. You know, I, I was, I'm speaking at the Kansas city public library Wednesday night, uh, but it's virtual, but Thursday I'm going to Parnassus books in Nashville, you know, and, and next week I'm doing bookstores in Alabama and Mississippi, and then I'm going to Dallas and Denver, but Ann Arbor's virtual. And, you know, so it's just sort of been uh, the sensibility of each of each bookstore and how they feel comfortable and what their clients tell them they want. But I, I love your idea about speaking, you know, about grief. I, I mean, I'm not, a, I, as I tell everybody, I'm not an expert on mental health. I'm an expert on one case of mental health that didn't go very well, but, but grief, I'm a little, I can talk about a little more. I think it's important. Again, my late mom um, was a, uh, on top of being a uh, college professor, was a psychologist and counseled 9-11 victims and people who had PTSD in New York. And um, she would probably agree with you that the, the 
you can learn a lot, obviously, from textbooks and, and um, research, et cetera, but to go through it and then to be able to explain in layperson terms what it's like to go through it and it's okay for you to sort of grieve the way you want to grieve is an incredibly important, valuable lesson. So it doesn't, you don't necessarily need a PhD to do it. Unfortunately, you need the life experience to do it, which you, um, which you have. Let me give the book again here. It's I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, A Memoir of Loss, Grief, and Love by Ivan Maisel on his late son, Max. Uh, Ivan, it's good of you to do this. You basically did Good Morning America, which is, of course, you know, seen by whatever, multiple millions of people, and then you slum your way to this tiny niche podcast on the same day. If I was your agent, I would probably say, let's, 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 let's aim a little higher next time, Ivan, but you're kind enough to come on this podcast and I appreciate Well, I am my agent and I was, I was <laughs> determined that you were going to have me on because I love your podcast and, and you've been a good friend to me and uh, I'm glad we did it. Yeah. Thanks, Ivan. And uh, it's really, it's a beautiful piece of writing and, um, and you should, it's a weird thing to say, but you should be proud. Uh, I, I mean, it's really honest. And, uh, and now I, that I'm a parent at my age, I, I can, um, I, I really appreciate what you wrote. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Ivan Mazel, and obviously you can check out um, the book on Amazon and any major place that has uh, books will have Ivan's book. Thanks, Ivan. Be well. Thank man. you. All right. Back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Holly Rowe and Jimmy Trainer and Ivan Mazel for uh, coming on the podcast. Uh, I figure Trainer Trainer is the change up there uh, between um, – between uh, Holly Rowe and Ivan Maisel. If you, uh, if you like this podcast, Sports Media with Richard Deitch, please head to the, uh, any of the pages that you listen on Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review and a nice note. Uh, that's how the podcast continues. You stay on the air. Bosses appreciate that. I certainly appreciate that. Prior to this podcast, uh, the NFL emails featuring New York Times writer Ken Belson and Jamel Hill. And that was a really interesting conversation with Ken in terms of how he's um, – how he's gone about reporting that. Jamel discusses uh, her view on uh, on those NFL uh, Washington football team emails and John Gruden. And lastly, Grant Wall talking about his uh, new substack on soccer and how he's covering uh, the U.S. national team. Interview before that, or the podcast before that, a conversation with Bucks broadcaster Lisa Byington and Sixers broadcaster Kate Scott. They are the first women full-time team play-by-play broadcasters for a major sport and then before that Conrad Thompson and Jeff Jarrett on uh, creating a successful podcast as they have done with My World with Jeff Jarrett check out uh, all the podcasts on the archives I think uh, you will find something that you enjoy as always my thanks to Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast thanks everybody to Cadence 13 thanks mostly to you for listening we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast